I am uh, truly grateful to be here and to be with you this weekend. I have been looking forward to this for some time. Uh, last summer, I was uh, able to be here for, for the summer series on a, on a Wednesday night, and after uh, those services concluded, I was visiting with Hiram, and, and we were talking, and he sort of uh, explained their plans for this weekend, and from that point uh, forward, I have just greatly anticipated being back uh, with the congregation at Lehman Avenue. I, the, the, man, the friendliness and the compassion that you guys showed to my wife and I while we were here over the summer, it was one that had made a tremendous impact on my life, and uh, I've looked forward to coming back and being with you, and of course experiencing uh, the fellowship we get from people that I didn't know and I have met this weekend. So many people have already and come before me thanked the congregation and Neil and Hiram and the elders for the job that they have done and are doing this weekend, but I'll, t I'll tell you, the people that I really have been impressed with. I have been impressed with the people that have introduced every session. Now, let me tell you something. If you've never introduced a session before, it's not easy to do. And I will say that perhaps for me, and it may be different for you if you've ever done announcements, I would rather preach 400 million weddings, funerals, and sermons than I had give announcements. I don't know why, but it just makes me nervous. I feel like I you know, haven't gotten the time to prepare the announcements like maybe I have for a lesson it just makes me nervous and introducing is the same way it's just it's nerve-wracking and these guys have done an incredible job because I know that's not their normal job and you've seen all kinds of people around here this weekend doing that and I know that that's a difficult task and one you ought to be commended for I appreciate that very much if you have your Bibles and you'd like to join me in James chapter 3 James chapter 3 and our assignment this afternoon is verses 1 through 12 and the troublesome tongue I I I wondered what Hiram was trying to tell me when he sent me this assignment, but I knew very quickly, I knew very quickly that it was because it was one that I needed, not because maybe Hiram thinks that. If he does, he hadn't said it, but I do know that this is one that is a prayer of mine frequently, a struggle of mine that I will readily admit to you, that, that the problem I have sometimes is is what I say and how I handle certain situations with what I say. And so everything that that I guess comes out of my mouth today is something that I've thought about and prayed for in my own life and hopefully as we study together we can grow and be encouraged by the admonition that James gives to us in this well-known but memorable and convicting text. Now Jeff mentioned to you uh, in his prayer, at least mentioned in his prayer, that Heidi and I are expecting our first child. And uh, Heidi's due in September, and I just, I, I, it's hard to really find emotions, I guess, to, or words to describe the emotions and excitement that I feel about that. I, I have thought a long time over the last few months since I found that out about what it's going to be like. You know, I've already planned out our first hunting trip and, you know, all the golf lessons that we're going to get and play together. And I mean, it just, I, I've thought long and hard about that. And, and I've also thought how many times, you know, on, on Facebook and, and TikTok and Instagram, there are all these videos of moms that will post videos of their kids and they're saying, will you say mama, 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 and every single time every kid says dada and I'm like man I can't wait 
You know, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear that out of my kids' mouth. I love hearing kids talk. Uh, we were in the doctor's office the other day. I had shoulder surgery a couple of weeks ago, and I had a follow-up appointment on Monday, and we were sitting there, and there was a little girl, maybe four or five years old, and she had no volume control. Everybody in the doctor's office heard every word this girl was saying, and it was hilarious. Everything out of her mouth was funny, and she had the North Alabama accent to just top it all off, and, and it was hysterical. Heidi and I laughed every time she opened her mouth because she was funny. I love hearing kids talk. But then if you ask me what your experience was like teaching middle school, well, I would tell you that I spend most of my time telling those kids to be quiet. And it's not just because I would like to communicate something to them that I feel like maybe could help them or at least trying to accomplish what's expected of us in a semester of school, but it's also because they really just don't know how to be quiet. And some of the stuff they say just will blow your mind. Uh, you listen to the, their thoughts and their mind, and, and just I'm, I wonder sometimes, what, what made you say that? But, but as much as, as I spend time thinking about how I love to hear kids talk and how much time I know that I have spent time telling them to be quiet. In fact, an older gentleman at church the other day told me, he said, Ty, you know, you spend the first two years of your kid's life begging them to speak and teaching them to speak, and then you spend the next 16 begging them to be quiet. I remember my dad, uh, he was a, a big fan of Run DMC. Maybe you've heard their song, You Talk Too Much. I heard that a lot from my dad. It's not just a problem with kids, you know, the talking too much and the words that sometimes that kids might muster up. And you wonder, where did that come from? Because, you know, every one of us in some degree or another relate to that phrase, you talk too much. And maybe it's not just the volume of words, the amount of words that we say, but it could be the content of the words we say. When we're frustrated, we whine. When, when we look at something, maybe we're aggravated or upset, we might criticize when we're excited or when we succeed, the opposite might be true, that we might be boastful, we might be prideful or proud, and that may show through in what we say. And all of those things, or at least a few of those, are just a small indication why I believe it's necessary for us to give attention to a passage like James 3. Even after we've read it a million times, perhaps you've read this passage in James more than you have any of the others. I'm not sure. Maybe it's if you're like me and you did have a mouth problem growing up. I can't tell you how many times I heard from my mom. It's not what you said, it's what? How you said it. You ever said that to your kids? Man, James 3 was like a written on every wall in our house. I grew up with two other brothers just like me. It's just the way it is. It's a passage that's familiar. But those tendencies that we show in all areas of our lives, when we're frustrated, when we're upset, when we're happy and successful, all of those are some indication why it's necessary for us to understand and even embrace what James is teaching in James chapter 3. Now, as you consider James, and it's already been noted this morning that James is likened to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus spends time encouraging those who were his disciples already that he called near to him, but also those that would hear his words and teaching them practical ways to live in a world that didn't really understand Jesus and for them to show what that world, or rather show the world what living like Jesus looked like. James repeats a lot of those things in some way or another, but in my mind, I liken James to the book of Proverbs. 
And the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament is obviously a book of wisdom in which Solomon and others will say these bits and phrases of practical wisdom that help us understand the nature and the tempo of the law and how we apply that in our everyday interactions with the people that we meet. That's the book of Proverbs in a nutshell. And James is that in the New Testament. It's like when we pray sometimes. Father, we pray that we'll take this lesson and use it in our everyday lives. James is the everyday lives part of the New Testament, the practical wisdom. And it's interesting to me that when you compare the two and their subject matter, that there are some 90 Proverbs in the book of Proverbs that are geared toward our mouths and our speech, and our lips, and our tongues. The way that we utilize those things, the volume at which we speak, but also the content with which we speak, and the frequency of those things. Solomon discusses all of them some 90 times in that great book. And James, in his encouragement to these Christians who were dispersed, carries on that wisdom by saying to them, there is a huge emphasis in your Christian life on how you utilize this instrument called your lips, or your mouth, or your tongue. Our assignment is the troublesome And so we give our attention to a text very familiar to us, James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you, he says, should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the wheel of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by man, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these Things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening or from the same opening, fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine producing figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, I I, I read through those verses, and of course a sense of familiarity sweeps over my body, perhaps in the form of... I'm familiar with this text because I'm a Bible student and I'd like to be a Bible student. And maybe it's a passage that we hear repeated in lessons and in Bible classes. Or maybe it's like I told you earlier and admitted because your mom read it to you a lot because you had a problem with your mouth when you talked back or you smarted off or something like that. Or maybe when you said things that were out of character or didn't represent the nature of Jesus Christ. A lot of emotions flood my mind and memory. 
as a result of reading that passage. But like so many have done already in our study of James, I want to broaden the scope a little bit. And before we actually work through the text, uh, which is our assignment, I, I want to give you a theology of words, if you will. I want us to broaden our scope and to think about the importance of words as a whole in the Scripture before we can key in on the wisdom of James to these Christians about how they utilize their words. Now, the doctor... When you go, maybe you've been recently, and you'll remember that when you visit your medical doctor, one of the things they always make you do is stick out your tongue. And the reason that they make you stick out your tongue, and I'm no medical doctor, but I think this is why it happens according to what I've read, that the reason they'll make you stick out their tongue, and this blew my mind, is that by looking at your tongue, they can tell what's happening in your body. That there are signs that are evident on your tongue if something is wrong or out of balance or something that does not reflect good health, it can be present and evident on your tongue. And just like that, James says, what is evident in your life by way of your tongue, it reveals what's going on inside of you, as has already been mentioned. That the instrument that fuels the tongue is the heart, much like the instrument that fuels the ship and the rudder is, of course, the pilot's wheel. The Bible says that. The rudder only turns the ship at the direction of the pilot. The bridle only steers the horse at the direction of the jockey or the person who's riding the horse, right? The reality is, just like the doctor makes you stick out your tongue so he can see what's going on on the inside, James says, I'm putting a special emphasis on your words because they reveal who you are on the inside. Words have always revealed. I want you to think back with me for just a minute uh, maybe uh, I guess I'll call it, this is what I've called it, the theology of words. Think back to the very beginning, how our world came into existence. It was because God spoke the world into existence. It was because God breathed and those things became alive. And as he begins to un veil himself, to reveal himself to creation, he does so by the things that he says, that we learn about God from the very outset of creation based on the words that he uses or chooses to reveal himself to us. And then you consider as you move into the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, those books of the law and that reveal the law of God, you see that those things came into existence because God spoke them into existence that he spoke his commands and that the humans that he created, they were also given the ability to communicate with words to each other for relationships and toward God for worship. That the whole basis of our creation was founded upon the words that God spoke. Even Satan in the garden, that, that he was able to speak and his form of communication obviously was not positive or good and that he twisted and distorted and misused the words of God but nonetheless Satan was able to speak and after humanity fell prey to Satan's ability to speak and to distort and to misuse and to mistreat God's words guess how God chose to assure them 
He spoke a promise to them in Genesis 3 and verse 15. A promise of hope and a promise of assurance that one who was greater than Satan would come and ultimately demolish him and wipe him away. Throughout the biblical narrative, from the rest of time, as you move on from the books of law, you begin to see that God gave specific commands and admonitions and encouragements and warnings about the use of the tongue. And there's numerous examples in the scripture of how people used it the wrong way. We spoke of Proverbs earlier, and you remember that Solomon says in Proverbs 18 and verse 21 that death and life are in the tongue. You and I in this moment, this present time, are currently awaiting the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? That's what we're waiting on. That's what we anticipate. That's our greatest hope in life is the return of the promised Redeemer who the Bible says was the Word, who became flesh, John chapter 1. His words were potent and intentional. John says in John 7 in verse number 46 that no one ever spoke like Jesus spoke. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 22, there was never any guile or any deceit found in his mouth. The words that flow from Jesus' mouth, they're unique in that they are some of the sweetest words ever spoken. Your sins are forgiven you, but they can also be the scariest words ever spoken. Depart from me, I never knew you. From that point forward in Jesus' ministry, he gave his disciples this charge. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Speak the gospel. Relay to these people the words of life the Bible says and indicates. Those letters to the churches, like this one that we're studying right now, are comprised of words, words that reveal to us the heart, the expectations, and the character of God. And in the end, the book of Revelation declares by the pen of John that the final standard, the great equalizer, the word, the word of God. I would propose to you this afternoon, I guess by now, that words are important. Words are incredibly important. That God has utilized the avenue of speaking and words to reveal to us his nature and character, who we are, our nature and character, and that ultimately it will be those words, Jesus says, that will judge on the last day. Jesus in Matthew 12, you remember his encounter with those Pharisees in dealing with the hypocritical nature of their hearts, how they were acting one way, they were portraying themselves to be this, and even their words said so, but who they were on the outside didn't necessarily reflect the words that they were saying. And Jesus says to them in no uncertain terms in Matthew 12 and verse 33 and following, out of the abundance of the heart the man speaks. In other words, what, what is on the inside is revealed by your mouth. Remember the example of the doctor. You, you listen or look at their tongue and it'll tell you everything about them that you need to know. And Jesus also said in, in Matthew 12 and verse 36, for every idle word or every careless word, the Bible says, some translations, you will give an account. And so what I learned from various passages in the scripture and even in the book of James, James chapter 3, that the instrument of our tongues are the heart. And there's a serious warning that I need to consider when it comes to the way that I use my mouth, my lips, my tongue, and ultimately my heart, that I'm going to be accountable for those words that come out of my mouth. Now, as we shift our attention to James chapter 3, I would propose that this is the most sustained argument as a whole, as far as verses are concerned, cumulative verses, 
This is the most sustained argument in the New Testament about our tongues. And James's proposition to these Christians to consider the value of what they say and the impact or influence of what they say. And even though this is our assignment in James 3, and I don't want to backtrack too much or look too much into other people's lessons, but I want you to notice how this is a recurring theme. It's not just our text in James 3 that James puts an emphasis on this speech, but this really dominates the book as a whole. Perhaps you remember just from this morning in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, I call it shameful speech. But James says, if you pay attention to the one that's wearing the fine clothing and you say to him here, have this good place. And then you look at the person who's in bad clothes and you say, here, sit at my feet or sit at this different place. Listen to what James says. Have you then not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges? James says, shameful speech. There's no room for that here. Don't look at someone and say, you get this and you get that, right? Then this, super superficial words. This is what we just heard about from Brother Rogers a few moments ago as we considered this. James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and they don't have food, they're lacking in daily food, the ESV says, and you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. In other words, I hope you have a great life. I hope everything works out for you. And James says, and you don't give them food? and you don't give what they're lacking in clothing or something like that, what good is it? What good is superficial words, James says. But also this, in chapter 4 and verse number 11, James says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Whoever speaks evil against his brother, James says, speaks against the law and judges the law. What about this in James 4, verses 13 and following? I'll call this cocky speech. You remember that James addresses the people that say, well, I'm going to go here and I'm going to do this. We're going to go buy and sell and trade and we're going to make all kinds of money. And he says, don't you remember that your life is like a vapor? Or the ESV says it's like a mist. It's here for just a second and it's gone in a moment. James says, don't get too cocky and, and you're saying that you're going to do this. But what you ought to say, James says in James 4 and verse 14, is if the Lord wills, then we'll do that, is what he says. But what about this, James 5 and verse 9? The complaining speech where James says, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. And I like this line. It's a potent and convicting line. He says, behold, the judge stands at the door. What a way to conclude a book of wisdom by calling their attention to the fact that every word that they speak those words of judgment toward other people, the words of complaint for themselves or the people that are above them. And even in this passage of Scripture, James 3 draws a huge emphasis on the spiritual maturity of God's people, namely because of our time and assignment this afternoon, the way that we use our tongue. Let's consider two areas in James chapter 3 this afternoon together. The first one I want to draw our attention to is the influence of, of our words. There are a couple of sections in James 3 verses 1 through 8, little subdivisions I guess you could say of the text that might help us to understand in a more complete way the influence of our words. And so as we work through the text you'll see those little divisions on the screen. But let's consider what we've already read. First of all, James begins by calling attention to those teachers. And I've labeled this the danger of becoming a teacher. Now again, not picking on teachers 
teachers. I think that's what Brother Burleson said earlier today. James wasn't just picking on teachers, but there was a special attention brought to those within the Christian community, whether you're teaching formally or informally, just this emphasis on the, the necessity of considering what it is you say and how important those words that come out of your mouth are. In fact, James says that the people who have chosen to teach, they're going to be judged with a stricter judgment or some translations say a greater condemnation. What are we, what are we talking about? James, what do, you, what do you mean that people who have chosen to teach are going to be held to a different standard or a stricter judgment or a greater condemnation? What are we looking at? And it, it's like this. And this really applies to all of us, but even more to those who are teachers, that, that you're not only susceptible to sin. We're all susceptible to sinning by the words that we say and the things that come out of our mouths by way of what's in our hearts, right? We're all susceptible to that, whether we teach or we don't teach. But James says you also ought to consider, those who have chosen to teach, that you're not just susceptible to sin, but that you could cause other people to do the same thing. That others who hear what you say and who listen and embrace and embody what it is you pour into them, you could cause them to be in the same situation. So for you to do that, you ought to consider what it means to teach. Bearing the spiritual responsibility of other people, that's a big deal. Let me give you a couple of things to consider if you're thinking about being a teacher. Maybe you are a teacher formally or informally. You teach classes, you teach other people. Consider these couple of things. It, it's a weighty call. It's not an easy thing to do. You'll be judged strictly. That, that's something that catches your attention. But number two, if you want to be a teacher, you have to understand it's a call to study. I don't think I realized that, how much that involved when I went to Memphis. I was overwhelmed, really, for a while when I started at the School of Preaching. I didn't quite understand, I don't think, what all it meant in order to take on that responsibility. But I've been told, and I think I'll stick to this, that the best teachers are the best students. They learn. They study, right? Know this if you're going to be a teacher, that it's tiring. The study we mentioned, but the criticism that you get. The fact that maybe you pour your heart into teaching these lessons, whether it's kids or adults or preaching from the pulpit, and maybe nobody responds. It's hard sometimes to bear that weight knowing that you've put all the, your heart into this and then you don't necessarily see results. Or maybe it's challenges that arise in trying to accomplish teaching these classes. Whatever it is, right? It's tiring. Number four, I would say it's, it's a journey. And if I've learned anything in life, journeys involve setbacks. They involve mess-ups. They involve redirection and trying to figure out how to navigate obstacles that come along with these journeys. And then this, finally, your teaching and your life are tied together. And I think James makes a big point of that. Not just in James 3 and verse 1, but in the book as a whole. Those who have chosen to take on that responsibility, who you are and what you say, it's tied, it's tied to how you teach, how you live. It's tied. Those two things can't be separated, right? The danger of becoming a teacher is how the chapter starts. But then let's transition to verse number two because this is where it gets real. It's, it's not that he was picking on those teachers in verse one, but now it's like, okay, but let me make sure you understand that all of us fall under this category, that the danger that the teachers are in, it's the same danger for us all, really, because if any man says that he is able to bridle his tongue or bring his tongue into control, he's a perfect man. In other words, man, this guy is doing something that other people just can't do. That's what I would consider to be the difficulty. 
is, is basically James says, if you can do that, you're in a category all on your own. There's really nobody quite like you if you can tame the tongue. In fact, there's nobody that can do it save one, Jesus Christ. But aside from him, there's no one that's able to do that. That's rather difficult to do. And you and I know as long as we live on the earth that taming the tongue is an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's not impossible. Well, maybe it is from a human standpoint, but I know this. And I think this may be the point that James tries to make when he illustrates the danger of this troublesome tongue. He says the point is pursue Christ's likeness and fight the battle for God-honoring speech because it's a battle worth fighting. Fight the battle. Understand the dangers and the implications of what happens when you don't do it right, but also understand the implications of what happens when you do do it right. When you do use God-honoring speech, how people are built up and churches are built up and people are influenced to Jesus Christ for the good of God's glory when you use your speech correctly. But this is the one that really catches my attention when we consider the influence of our words. Notice the disproportionate power of the tongue, right? Disproportionate means you look at it and it just doesn't fit right? It doesn't make sense because one thing is clearly larger than the other. It's disproportionate, right? I have a good friend who is a lot bigger than I am, and when we stand beside each other, my wife calls us Robin Big, like the TV show from the past. He's so much bigger than I am, we're disproportionate in our friendship. He is a lot taller than I am, and here I am down here, right? That's just the way it is. When we stand beside each other, it's a bit disproportionate. If we were to get on a seesaw at the park, it it would be a little bit disproportionate is what I'm trying to get at. It just doesn't make sense. The two things don't equal out. All right, now listen to this. He says in verse number three, if you put the bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide our whole body as well or their whole body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a small rudder wherever the wheel of the pilot Directs. And so as we give our attention to the disproportionate power of the tongue, consider the fact that James is saying, listen, this very small instrument in comparison to the rest of you is able to completely redirect who you are in your own eyes and in the eyes of others, and even more importantly, in the eyes of God, that something so small as your tongue has the power to cause such great damage. You think about a horse. Y'all are familiar with horses in Kentucky, aren't you? Right? Those 1,200-pound creatures. You put that little bitty piece of metal in his mouth, how disproportionate that is. That this big of an instrument is able to make a 1,200-pound animal turn on a dime. It doesn't make sense. It's something that isn't really able for me to grasp, honestly, how something so small does that. Or even consider the image of a ship. It's different for us. I mean, when we think of a boat, I'm thinking, you know, of the six-foot Alumawell John boat. We went A 16-foot John boat went fishing in on Sunday last week in between services. That's what I think of. And even a boat such as that, it, in sorts, it has a rudder. It's not the same kind of rudder that a big ship might have, but you think in comparison to the size of that 16-foot Alumawell boat and the small rudder on the components of that motor, how it's able to turn that boat. It just doesn't make sense. It's disproportionate that something that big is influenced by something that small. And James says, here's the reality. This little instrument, your tongue, has the ability to completely redirect who you are in the eyes of others 
in your own eyes and ultimately in the eyes of God. Now, when you pay attention, I guess, to James's admonition, it really convicts us, I think, to pay attention then to how we speak. And I know this, and I know you know this. I've had to learn this the hard way sometimes. When you use that little instrument negatively, it causes incredible hurt. I've been victim of it, and I've been guilty of doing it to other people. And I also know that using it positively can make an incredible difference in the lives of other people. Literally, this little instrument in our mouths can stir men to do great things. This whole weekend is for the purpose of equipping people to go out into the world and change the world for the better, to stir men up to conviction and compassion for Jesus. But in the very same breath, mind you, James says in this text that those same people with that same instrument could very well go into the same place and stir those same people up to violence. That's how powerful the tongue is. In, in one sentence, this word that we speak could be enough to make someone soar with the eagles, if you will, but in the next breath could make someone want to go home and never leave their house again because it has the power to literally break people down, which leads me to the destructive power of the tongue. Right in line with James's illustration, he says, it's like a small member, verse 5, but it boasts great things. How great a blaze, James says, how, how big of a fire is set because of that small little spark of the tongue. Verse 6, it's like a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It's set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it's set by the fires of hell. I don't I don't really know. I've never seen a wildfire. I've never seen that before. I've seen the aftermath of that to some degree in Gatlinburg. I've never seen out west what happens. But I've seen in my own eyes the devastation of that. Particularly the most vivid imagery I have of fire destroying something uh, is my little brother's head. I lit his hair on fire. When I was in high school, uh, he was, uh, I, I really don't know how this happened, but uh, something about a boy's infatuation with fire, and I had a lighter in my hand, and I was just flicking it on and off repeatedly, not lighting anything on fire, but just flicking it on and off, and I was helping Cole with his homework. We were sit, sitting at the bar at our, in our kitchen, and my, my parents weren't home from work yet, and my youngest brother was sitting there, and I had my arm around him as I was looking at his homework, and I was just flicking that lighter. All of a sudden, I was like, I was like, man, this smells weird. You know, you walk around the other side, and he's got a massive white patch on the side of his brown hair where I had singed all of the hairs on the side of his head. And so I immediately make him run to the bathroom, and I had him under the faucet in the sink, and I was scrubbing his head with shampoo, hoping that it would come out. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was trying really hard to get that white stuff to go away so Mom didn't know. And in walks Mom right when I'm scrubbing his head. And I had to explain to her what I did, but I saw in that moment just like I mean it seriously it couldn't have been a, more than a second or two because I was just flicking it on and off it wasn't like I held it on there for three minutes or even a minute it was a second and I, his whole head's burned you know I, I understand then when you relate that to what James is saying it doesn't even have to be a 45 minute speech it doesn't even have to be a five minute speech one word could be the difference in life or death. That one word. 
could be the difference in heaven or hell. It's that serious, James says, the destructive power of the tongue. I thought I'd have a hard time getting 40 minutes, and I'm having a hard time fitting it in in 40 minutes. Let's consider then the inconsistency of our words, James says. Now, as we look at verses 9 through 12, I tried to just go verse by verse and put it this way. Verse 9, I feel like, presents an observation. James says, with it, that is the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now, here's the observation. James says, we are capable of one of the highest forms of praise. Did you catch that? We bless our Lord and Father. That's the most highest form of praise that you and I could ever participate in. And James says, you're capable of that. What a blessing. But he also says in the same breath, you are capable of the lowest form of speech. Cursing God's creation. What an observation, right? And look how he follows that up in verse 10 with this problem. He says, out of the same mouth, that is, the one that you bless the Lord with, perhaps from time to time, but also the one that you curse His creation with, out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that's a problem. That shouldn't happen. In fact, he says, it shouldn't be that way. That's not the way it should be. In other words, it should be one or the other, not both. There's no sitting on the fence or flip-flopping. It's either you bless the Lord or you hurt. There's no in-between. Consider then this illustration, verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Here's what I gather from James's illustration. Blessing God and cursing other people is as crazy absurd as a spring that gives you one cup of fresh water and one cup of salt water. That blessing God and cursing others out of the same mouth, essentially, that doing those things is as crazy absurd as one single tree that gives you figs and then the next time you approach it to gather its harvest, it gives you olives. It doesn't make sense. It's crazy. And here's the thing. James actually doesn't give us a solution to the problem. He moves on in verse 13 to the wise. That, that he sort of leaves it hanging. And, and I think there's a couple of reasons, and part of it is what I've already put on the screen before, how it's really a running emphasis that James puts, beginning in chapter 2 all the way to chapter 5 on the speech. There's a ton about it in there. So that may be part of the reason. But I also think that James is helping us to allude to other examples in the Scripture because he says his conclusion is this, no man can tame the tongue. And guess what? James is right. But I'm here to tell you that the internal change that we need and something that we need to embrace, right, is that God can. God can. I can't. No man can tame the tongue. James said it and I'll admit it and I hope you will too. But God can. Now before I get to those admonitions on the screen, I've got two minutes left. I, I, I want to put before you something else to consider under this heading. This change that you and I need to make and embrace. I want to I want you to consider a couple of passages. Perhaps you recall Romans chapter 1 and verse 29 or 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 20 where there are those lists of vices, lists of problems that are addressed by the apostle Paul and in those vices are the sin of gossip 
an issue with the tongue. Sin is often linked to issues with the tongue. It is in Romans 1 and 29 and in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 20. It's also there in Romans 3, 10 and following in Paul's indictment of the human sinfulness that he was encountering in the church at Rome. It was sins of the tongue. But perhaps you recall this really, really great example in Scripture, I think, of issues with the tongue. And, and, and I think it really drives the change that we would like to see in our own lives. Perhaps you recall Isaiah 6. Isaiah has this vision. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, verse 1. And beside him stood these seraphim. They had six wings. With two they covered their head, and with two they covered their bodies, essentially. And with two they covered their feet. And one said to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, verse number 3. And the foundation of the temple, they were shaking, and the voice of the Lord cries out, and, and the whole house filled with smoke, the Bible says. And listen to this, verse 5. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now listen to this, verse 6. One of the seraphim flew down to me, Isaiah says, and having his hand a burning coal on which or from which he takes and he places it on the lips of Isaiah in verse 7, and he says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. What I would propose to you this morning, as our time, this afternoon, as our time comes to a close, James is right. No man can tame the tongue. And as long as you and I try to get a grip on it, it will always be our reality. No man can tame the tongue. But I would argue, God can. God can. And James's wisdom is this encouragement of a lifelong Christ-like pursuit of God-honoring speech. I'm reminded of the song we like to sing from time to time, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. And the fourth stanza of that song goes like this, Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. By God's grace, let our lips sing the redeeming love of God until we die. <laughs>